coin out of a fish's mouth or a garage sale in the middle of winter. <laughs> Both to meet needs. Isn't that an amazing thing? I'd like to invite you to open with me to the book of Titus chapter 2 this morning. <clears throat> been endeavoring to preach out of this chapter 2 of Titus in recent days. Today our text will be taken from verses 9 and 10, where we read these words, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Now what the theme has been over these last series of messages, has been this idea that's found in the last phrase there, adorn the doctrine of God in every respect. We could maybe put it this way, God save us from a bare profession. Adorn it. And that word is, in the Greek, is the word that we get cosmetics from. Now I imagine there were some ladies that got up this morning and put on their cosmetics before they came in to church. And that's that idea, adorning there. Adorning the doctrine of God. But it might help us before we get into specifics here in dealing with bond slaves in particular, which the application I hope to make to be employees, Christians in the workplace, it might help us to pull back for a minute and just kind of get a brief overview of what this this epistle to Titus is all about. You know, Titus was a young man, and we discover in the first chapter that he was left on the Isle of Crete to set in order things that yet remain. He and the Apostle Paul had come through preaching the gospel, and it had been blessed with some success, and a church was being raised up there, and Paul went on, and he left Titus back to set in order some things that remain. Now that says to me there's some chaos. There's a little bit of discord here. You need to set some things in order. And as we go on in the first chapter, we discover that he's to appoint elders in these churches as he was instructed. Well, that doesn't sound too bad, except as you read on in the book, you begin to understand a little bit what Titus was up against. His mission there to appoint elders was for one on this island of Crete who had a national reputation that was not very good. We find in the first chapter that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And that was a testimony that came from their own people, not from a Jew outside. And Paul said this testimony is true. So here you've got a national reputation, and Titus was right in the middle of that. Now we also discover that there were some problems in the church. 
Titus was instructed that there are some people you're going to have to silence. False teachers, they're teaching things, they're upsetting entire families. Teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. And he was told to reprove them severely so that they'll be sound in the faith. And then we discover at the very last verse of the first chapter, hypocrites. There are those who profess to know God, but by their works they deny Him. The Apostle Paul says those folks are detestable, disobedient, and worthless. Now how would you like to fall into that category? So these are some of the things that Titus is up against. We get to chapter 3. Remind them they've got to be subject to their rulers and authorities to be obedient. So you see, Titus, he's got his work cut out for him. And it's easy to see how he could fall in to discouragement and that kind of thing. And so the Apostle Paul sends this letter, and in the midst of the letter, it's as though he's encouraging Titus and setting him straight. We find in chapter 2 and verse 11, it's like Paul is saying to Titus, now Titus, I know your situation. I was there, and it's a very difficult one. And your task appointing elders and establishing some order in the church, etc., is not going to be easy. I realize that. But Titus, you're forgetting one thing. The grace of God has appeared. You're forgetting the power of the Gospel to change people. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, even these Cretans, as bad as they are. You see. And the Gospel has appeared to our minds, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. The Gospel comes in first and foremost to your mind. And not only that, the grace of God has appeared to your heart, enabling you to live godly, sensibly, righteously in this present age. You're, you're forgetting the power of the Gospel, Titus. And not only that, but the Gospel focuses your mind on your Redeemer. It causes people to look for the blessed appearing of the coming of the glory. And it focuses your mind on the Redeemer who redeemed you from every lawless deed. You see, and purchased you, made purifying for Himself His own possession. So Titus, you're forgetting these things. And then not only that, Titus, but you're forgetting when we get to chapter 3 and verse 3, you're forgetting we also once were foolish ourselves. Look at the power of the Gospel in our lives. We were once foolish ourselves. Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Disobedient. Deceived. Spending our life in malice and envy. Hateful. Hating one another. But what happened? when the kindness of God appeared and His great love for mankind. He saved us. It's the power of the Gospel, you see. Not only did He save us, He regenerated us by the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And the justify, He justified us by His grace, it's stated there. So you see... Titus, you're forgetting about the power of the Gospel in your situation to change hearts and to renew and to save. 
And so this is kind of an overview of what this book is about. And so then the Apostle says, Now, Titus, speak the things that are fitting for sound doctrine in chapter 2 and verse 1. And he says, Speak, exhort, reprove with all authority. Don't let anyone disregard you. Go in there. You're able to tell those, those older men, be dignified. You're able to tell those older women, be respectful in your behavior. Be teachers of the young women. You're able to tell the young women to have your focus primarily on your husband and your children and your family. And you're able to tell those young men to be sensible young men and to have your, your language under control because there are opponents out in the world that are going to contradict you. Don't give them anything bad to say, you see. So he's able to specifically address these individual groups because of the power of the Gospel to change these people. Pray it. Teach it. And let God deal with all of them and change their hearts. You see. So I guess in a nutshell, what we're talking about then is the power of the Gospel to transform lives and to make righteous demands on us. Live this way. You young men, you young ladies, you older men, you older ladies, and today, you slaves. You see. So we arrive then at verse 9 of chapter 2, urging the bond slaves. <clears throat> so we have the power of the gospel to cut across not only both sexes, male and female, not only all the age groups, young and old, but also all of the social standings. You have slaves, they were the lowest class in society. But here the gospel comes in and it gives a righteous demand if you're a Christian slave, this is how you need to be. And how you need to live. So when we're talking about bond slaves then, what are we talking about? And I'll, I'll give just a little bit of history here. It might help you to understand in that day and age. You know, historically, <clears throat> Rome was full of slaves. Their entire economy, in fact, you could say, was based upon slavery. They had, in some of the resources that I was able to research in, estimates suggest that the slave population in Rome, 1 A.D., was as much as 300,000 of the 900,000 total inhabitants. Now that's one out of every three men was a slave. One out of every three individuals, a slave of some sort. That's an incredible ratio. <clears throat> one resource said an island called Delos, sometimes as many as 10,000 slaves were sold in one day there. Now you might wonder, how do people become, so? how can there be so many slaves? Well, some of them were prisoners of war and made into slaves. Some were condemned men, criminals in other words. Uh, you could default on a bad debt and become a slave. Now, I wonder if we still add that one on the books, it might do away with some of these bad loans, etc., in our economy. <laughs> you default on that, you become a slave of that man, might square some things away. Through kidnapping, of course, that's how we know our slavery and that we had in America. Kidnapped slaves brought over here, you see. You could voluntarily sell yourself as a slave. 
If you can imagine this, you can sell your children as a slave. That happened often. So they had all of these slaves. Now, not all of them were the lowest class of society. Some of them rose to some degree of prominence. You could be a butler, you could be a barber. Um, some, in some places, you could be a family physician and be a slave to that man. Again, that might help our high costs of, of health care, wouldn't it? <laughs> You're sick and the doctor in your own house is your slave. So slavery. Not all of them were bad treated, ill treated either. In fact, it was kind of controlled by society a little bit, how badly a man could treat his slave. But the reality was the owner had absolute authority over his slave. He could do anything to him. They might be in chains. They might be, some of them were branded with a brand right on their forehead. He had the power to have them crucified. You see, it was absolute power over them. And a slave, <clears throat> he could purchase his freedom if he could save up enough money to do it, or he might eventually be set free by the last will and testament of his master when he died. So it's not hard to see why the Bible has so much to say about this particular class. It appears in the book of Ephesians, it appears in Colossians, 1 Timothy, 1 Peter, the book of Philemon was dealing with a slave, wasn't it? Here's a man who ran away from his slave, got under Paul's ministry in Rome and was converted. So Paul said to him, you're, you don't have to go back now, right? He said, you're, you're free. The gospel doesn't approve of slavery. That's not what he said, was it? He said, go back and be a Christian slave now. So this idea of slavery and how the gospel can move in and change the whole situation. You see, you won't find in the Bible where the gospel denounces slavery. Paul didn't, he didn't preach a slave revolt. But what did he do? He preached the gospel. The gospel comes in and changes the heart of the slave. He preached the gospel. The gospel comes in and changes the heart of the master. And wherever the gospel influence is widespread, slavery goes away without any revolt. Imagine what it would have been like in Rome if the apostles would have stood up and said, slaves, rise up. The gospel doesn't permit men to own men. What if that would have happened? You see, so really what is, what's so glorious about all of this is the righteous demands of the gospel on everyone and the power of the gospel to change people. <clears throat> there was a... German philosopher, and he had this quote, I'll give it to you. He said, show me your redeemed life and I'll be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. And that there's a lot of truth in that. It's living, what we're talking about this morning is living out what you say you believe. God save us from a bare profession. Well, we'll deal with specifics here now. Urge the bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything. I see five specific exhortations that were given to these slaves, and we could, we could rightfully, I believe, in our society, apply them to us as employees out in the workplace. I look over the congregation here. There are most likely in every family somebody is working or re retired or something like that, so there's a, 
there's a great application to to everyone. Well, the first that I see here is submissiveness. Being under authority, he says, urge the bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. Getting under their authority. Literally, it means get in rank, be in rank. Now, what is the opposite of submission? You'd have to say on, in the workplace, it would be insubordination, wouldn't you? You know, I worked for 30 years as an electrician myself before God called me into the pastorate. And I worked construction. And you could fire a man and give him a termination slip. And there were a number of choices on there that could be checked off by a supervisor, the reason for the termination. And one of the termination reasons on there was insubordination. This guy just plain won't take orders. You can't get him to do anything or make him to do anything. And that word insubordination, it's in, which means un, right? Inaccessible. Sub, which is a submarine, goes under, right? Ordination, here's a man ordained to a place of authority. So insubordination, you're not under authority. Well, what we're saying here is a Christian should never be in that place. You should never be that person. You should be subject to your employer in everything. And we don't have time to go into all of the ethics about that as far as what's required of you, but we can say in matters that are not matters of conscience, in other words, your allegiance to God is not at stake here, you need to be able to take orders and be under authority if you're going to be a Christian in the workplace and be saved from having a bare profession. Submissiveness. And all of these things, really they result in a testimony that is either positive or negative for the cause of the gospel in the world. There was a great Scottish preacher named Alexander McLaren, and he said they read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. And if you're a man that's professing to be a Christian out in the workplace, that's the exact truth. They read you. And they read how you're living and how you're acting. John MacArthur said, Godly character in the world is the greatest evangelistic strategy. You might pass out tracts, you might preach, you might invite people to the church, But if you're not living a consistent Christian testimony before the world, you have no platform to be able to do any of that. It is a godly testimony that has the most evangelistic impact upon the world. And here we are out in the world, all of us. So submissiveness, what else? Well, we see well-pleasing. They're to be well-pleasing. And that's satisfying to the boss, simply making the boss happy. Can you, as a Christian, do your best to make your boss happy? It sounds, there's nothing profound here in a lot of this, but it's still basic Christianity. We're talking about basic Christianity on the job in in an area, an arena of our lives that we're all familiar with, being employees. Well, number three, not argumentative. Well, the word in the Greek, anti-legos. Anti, we know to mean against, obviously. And legos is what's spoken. 
You're not argumentative. You're not speaking out against your boss. You're not sassing back. You're not talking back to this guy. You see, that's what we're talking about. Not mouthing off. Literally, it's rebellion in the form of an argument. Challenging orders. You know, sometimes in my line of work, there would be two whole crews of individuals, say, or even more, pulling a big cable, for instance, in one of these refineries, and it would come off of a huge reel that was bigger than a man, and we'd have to pull it up cable trays and and pipe racks and through fittings and junction boxes until it finally wind up at a piece of equipment way out in the plant. And you can imagine the task of trying to coordinate um, a wire pull of that size. I mean, you have to post a man at every place where there's a bend in the cable. And they have to pull it out, and, and somebody had to be in charge of all of that and issue orders. But invariably, the nature of mankind, someone would complain and grumble about their position in the middle of this cable pull, and they would always have a better way to do it. And there'd be some dissension in the ranks. You know, if I was boss, I wouldn't do it this way. I'd, sure, I'd do it this way. And that's, that's what we're talking about. Fellows couldn't just get in a spot where you could... I mean, the easiest thing is just go to where they tell you to go and do what you're told to do. And if it doesn't work, it's not your fault. It's the guy's fault that told you to do it. So that's what we're talking about, not being argumentative on the job place. The Christian shouldn't be the one who's always got a beef with the boss, the way things are going, a better way to do it, etc. Not argumentative. Now, we would say that Scripture would permit you to go through proper channels. If there's something that needs to be rectified, you can do it in a righteous way. Something that honors God. A way that honors God. What about the next one? The fourth one. Not pilfering. Now, that's a word we don't know much. We don't use very often. I don't think I've ever heard anybody use it. I know a college student wouldn't use a word like that. Pilfering. That's kind of a nerdy word, isn't it? (laughs) But I like that word, pilfering. Literally, in the Greek, it means embezzling, keeping something back for yourself. Now, an application in the Scriptures, clear application, is Acts 5. Ananias says Ananias kept back a portion for himself. That's that same word in the Greek. He embezzled from God. Well, a Christian for sure shouldn't be an embezzler. He shouldn't be keeping anything back. Now, I know that that sounds, that sounds to us like you shouldn't even have to say that to folks that are professing to be Christians. But... <clears throat> The U.S. Chamber of Commerce estimates that 30% of jobs that go under are due to employee theft. 30% of the jobs of the, of, the, of the companies that go under are due to employee theft. That's the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. The FBI says it's the fastest growing crime in America. Employees stealing from their boss. I was on the internet looking this up a little bit, and I came across this. A 24-year-old software engineer at America Online, he was arrested on federal charges 
that he hacked into the company's computers and he stole 92 million email addresses and sold them for $100,000. That's, that's what we're talking about, that kind of thing. Here's something that's interesting I found. <clears throat> it's a device called the Whirlwind Anti-Theft Grinding Hood. Now that doesn't mean anything to you just yet, but let me go on here. This is the this is the sales pitch for this device. It says, "Let's face it. When working around so much precious metal, some polishers are tempted to supplement their income with your gold. Take away the temptation, the whirlwind grinding hood." When used with a gold, with a good dust collector, makes losses a thing of the past. So here you have a, a a group of individuals. Their job is to polish gold for for rings or whatever, and they're stealing gold dust. And so somebody develops this device to prevent employee theft. That's pilfering, right? Now. <clears throat> The things that I've told you so far are about others, but I'd like to share something with you personally that, that I'm very ashamed of. But in the early years, <clears throat> when I was an apprentice, just an apprentice electrician, first year or two in my trade, we worked on a job for a contractor, and <clears throat> it was at a lock and dam, a state of Illinois job. And all of this old cable was being pulled out, and the cable was coated in lead, if you can imagine that. It was very enduring. But anyway, it was old, and we were pulling all this cable out and chopping it up, and the employer gets all of the scrap. It's his by right. And he was taking that scrap and scrapping it out and making a killing on the scrap. It was long, long runs of this lead-covered cable and a lot of work. Well, <clears throat> we went to another job, and there was large diameter cable. It wasn't lead covered, but it was in conduits. And under the direction of our journeymen, us apprentices, were pulling some of this cable out every day, chopping up pieces of it, and sending it home with another guy. And he was burning the, the, con the conductors, the sheathing off of the cable, and we were selling it. And at the end of every day, a small section of it was put back in the end of a pipe. So to a passerby, it looked like that wire was still in there. But every day, more and more of it was going out. Till eventually, we had all the money and split it between us. Now I go to tell you, I tell you that with, with a degree of shame, because that was employee theft. Stealing from your boss. And the Apostle says, as slaves, as employees, you ought not to be that way. Stealing. The fifth one. In good faith. Loyalty. With all good faith, he says here. Showing all good faith. It's loyalty, I believe, on the job is what's being talked about. <clears throat> Giving ample evidence to your boss that you're loyal. You can be trusted. Now, I would say that, I'd venture to say that it's not going to matter much to your boss what your degree is, what your level of experience is, if you're not faithful, if he can't trust you. 
He wants someone he can trust in a position. In fact, you probably, if you get down to it, he probably would, he would probably prefer trustworthiness and faithfulness more than he would a degree or knowledge. And so as a Christian, this is an area to shine in the workplace. Being faithful and loyal to your boss. So you can see here, if a slave did these things, if he acted this way, as we just read in this text, he would stand out, wouldn't he? And what about a Christian in the workplace? If you lived this way, on the job, surely you'd be a standout. Not in the sense that that you want to get a you want to get a promotion or or something like that, but in the stand from the standpoint that you would you would be such a glorious reputation for the gospel, representation for the gospel on the job. Well I'd like to Oh, I'd like to look at some other portions here before the time gets away. <clears throat> I won't draw your I won't draw your attention in the sense that we'd have to turn to these, but I probably would just refer to them to most of them. But one that I'd like for you to turn to is Ephesians chapter six. <clears throat> here here again, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. These slaves are dealt with in this relationship between slaves and masters comes up in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. I'd like to Oh, I'd like to offer to you three overruling principles concerning Christian service. <clears throat> and there are really there there are maybe five other places um, apart from our text in Titus that this slave issue comes up and we're not going to turn to them and read all of those but I'm going to refer to them as we go along, but three overruling principles concerning Christian service. One, <clears throat> there's this principle of required obedience. And to put it negatively, no insubordination or rebellion is allowed. And we talked about that just a minute ago. It's wrong by sheer Christian principle to be a rebellious individual on the job. It's got to be that way. <clears throat> um, in Titus, we, we just read, be subject to your masters. In Ephesians here, we just read, slaves, be obedient. In Colossians chapter 3, which deals with this topic of slaves again, 
Slaves, in all things, obey. In 1 Timothy 6, we read, Serve them all the more. In 1 Peter 2, we read, Servants, be submissive. You see? So here's this first principle. Required obedience. If you're a Christian on the job, obey. Do what you're told. The next principle. There's a higher calling for the Christian. And thus, a higher responsibility. Ultimately, for the Christian, it's the honor of God Himself. That is an overruling chief matter in the life of a Christian. And for that, I would say, I would offer as proof text for that, Titus 2, where we were just at, it says, so you will adorn the doctrine of God. That's why you act this way. Adorning the doctrine of God. Ephesians 6, it says, as to Christ. It says, as slaves of Christ. As to the Lord. From the Lord. All of these phrases that we just read in Ephesians 6. There's a higher calling for the Christian. In Colossians 3, it says, fearing the Lord. It says, do your work heartily as for the Lord. It says, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive your reward. It says, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And it says also, you have a master in heaven. You see, it comes up all the time in these texts regarding Christians in the workplace. You have a higher calling and a higher responsibility. In 1 Timothy 6, it says, in the name of God, so that the doctrine will not be spoken against. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, for the sake of conscience toward God. So here is the second one. You have a higher calling. You're a Christian. <clears throat> the third one, I would say, there is a required sincerity in your service. In other words, again, negatively, no hypocrisy. Don't be a hypocrite in what you do on the job. Just in the form of general service. Again, our texts that we are referring to in Titus 2, it says, showing all good faith serve this way. There it is. No hypocrisy. In Ephesians 6, in the sincerity of your heart, it said our service should be. In Ephesians 6, verse 6, not by way of eye service as men pleasers. In verse 7, with good will. Now all of this is talking about not a hypocritical attitude, isn't it? Colossians 3, not with external service, but with sincerity of heart. Uh, whatever you do, do your work heartily as to the Lord. There it is, sincerity in it, in your service. Required sincerity. <clears throat> First Peter 2, again, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. So we're talking about not doing things, not looking busy, just when the boss comes around, in other words, to put it in common terms. 
Not looking busy just when the boss is around, but that would be hypocritical service, wouldn't it? That would be eye service. But with sincerity offering our service. Not externally. Not being men-pleasers. You know, the eye of your boss might not be on you, but the eye of God is always on you. And so here we are again, a higher calling as a Christian on the job, right? Now I'll give you a little example of this, <clears throat> again from my own experience. When I was on a job one time and a fellow, was a, he was a welder and he had to cut brackets that he was going to use to weld. And he would sit down at the bandsaw. You know, a bandsaw is a portable saw, not a portable, but a fixed saw that cuts metal. And he would sit down at the bandsaw and he would cut a few of these brackets up and begin to get a little pile going here. And then he would let the saw run and it would get halfway through a bracket and he would set the limit on the saw so it wouldn't drop any further and it would stay at that halfway spot through a bracket. And he'd put on his dark glasses and sit at his chair and sit there and sleep. And the saw was running. And so a boss would walk by and here, here he is, he's got a stack of Brackets cut, the saw's running, here it's halfway through on another piece, and he's sitting there watching it, right? To the eyes of the boss, that's what's going on. But he's got his head down and he's sound asleep. <laughs> now that's insincere service. <laughs> that's eye service. It looks good at a distance, but if you knew any better, you'd fire that guy on the spot. Insincerity. So those three overruling principles, required obedience, the higher calling for the Christian, and required sincerity in it. You want to be a Christian? This is how you should act on the job. Well, what else? <clears throat> it might help you. I'll offer three helps here also in closing. Three helps ways for you to rightly view your, your job, and even if you take it down specifically, every honorable task that you might have to do on your job, three, three ways to view it that might be helpful to you as Christians on the job. One, <clears throat> I would say, it helps, it helps to view our jobs as being done for God's glory. It just plain helps. You get up in the morning, you go to work. Don't think about that grumpy boss that you're trying to please. Think higher than that. You've got a higher calling. You're a Christian. You're pleasing God by, li by living rightly on the job and performing your task to the way that we were just describing. It pleases God. So view your job then as done for God's glory. In other words, His doctrine is adorned. We just read that, didn't we, in Titus 2. You're adorning the doctrine of God. We read in Ephesians 6, verse 6, His will is being accomplished. And in 1 Timothy 6, 1, dealing with this topic of slaves, His name is honored. So it helps. Get up in the morning tomorrow, whenever you get ready to go to work, and think that you're starting out on a day that's going to be lived in the workplace to the glory of God. That helps to view your job that way. It really does. It makes all the difference in the world. Well, then I would say, 
for a second thought in this idea of helps for rightly viewing your job. It helps to view your job as being providentially supplied by God for your good. Now think about it. If we believe that all things work together for the good of those who are called, then you have to say you're at this job because God planted you there. And we would go further to say that every job that has any Christian representation on it is blessed in direct proportion to the number of Christians that are on that job. Think about it. There are jobs that are going on in the world right now where there, there, isn't, there might not be a, a Christian on the entire shift. There might not be a Christian in the whole plant. And here you are on a job as a Christian planted by God there providentially. So it helps to view your job that way. Some jobs I know as I look out in the congregation and I see different ones, I know there, there might be three or four Christians on a particular job working for a particular company or a boss. Think about the light God has in that place. So view your job providentially, provided by God. Isn't that what we read there in Ephesians 6? Doing the will of God from the heart. It's God's will that you're there, providentially. There's a sense, a feeling that God has ordered the circumstances of your life in all of His wise and good providence for you in that job to give it to you. And so it'll help you maybe to find happiness in it, in submitting to God if you view it from a providential aspect. For sure, He's providing your material needs. But here now, here's another way to consider it. It's providential. You've got this job. You're bringing home a check. He's providing you... He's providing for all your needs, right? He's putting bread on the table. A lot of people don't have jobs nowadays, so it's a provision of God providentially that way. But it's also providential in that you're in the place where you're at right now for your own sanctification. God's trying to make you more like Christ right where you're at, you see, for your own sanctification. Well, What do we mean by that? Well, your job is an arena designed to perfect holiness, personal holiness in. And all of the challenges that you face in it on a day-to-day basis are designed for your sanctification to make you more like Christ. And Brother Mason said to me on the phone the other day, I believe if I can quote it right, he said a Christian 9 to 5 every day in America, it's the toughest It's the toughest calling, the toughest place to be holy in. Nine to five in America every day. But it's so practical. God's not requiring you to fill a pulpit or to go away to a mission field. He's not requiring that of you. He's requiring of you when you get up in the morning and you go to the job, live like a Christian, be Christ-like and holy. You see? For our sanctification providentially. It might be... Your job is for your humbling. There can be some very humiliating circumstances put to you on the job. And God might be trying to humble you in them. That's your sanctification, isn't it? It might be that He's trying to produce in you a sense of contentment. That's sanctification. 
This idea of being content, content with your circumstances, content with your your wage. That's what John told the the, the uh, soldiers, didn't he? John the Baptist. They said, what do we do? He said, quit extorting money from people, strong-arming folks and getting money from them, and be content with your wages. Well, there you go. Being a Christian on the job. Being content. Contentment for our sanctification. You know, I was on a job one time at the Stateville Penitentiary in Illinois. And it was an outside job. They were constructing a new holding facility. And it was right in the dead of wintertime. And it was a, a winter that was one of the worst winters we'd experienced in our area for a while. I mean, it was cold outside. And we had to run conduits in the ground <clears throat> to be underneath underneath a slab, a concrete slab that the building would be erected on. We had to run conduits under there. And you could literally not puncture the ground swinging a pick to dig a trench to put a conduit in. And I had on so many clothes you could you felt like you were on a moonwalk or something with all those clothes on. It was so cold. And <clears throat> my partner was working with me and he said, let's quit this job. You know, we were union electricians. You could quit the job and go to the union hall and who knows, you might be able to get a job inside at a hospital or something. He said, let's quit this job. This is too much. But I had a sense about me that God providentially had me in that place at that time to teach me to be content. And so I said, I, I don't feel right about it. Let's just stick it out. And so we stuck it out through that winter, and it was a tough winter. But I'm, well, I'm just telling you that to say, sometimes that's what... God is trying to do in your life. Look above all of that. Pull back and get the bigger picture. You might be going through a difficult circumstance for your sanctification to teach you a level, greater level of contentment. I don't know. <clears throat> One other way that our sanctification might be being worked out on the job is simply by patience. God is teaching you to be patient. And I mean that in the sense of suffering unjustly. Now, I don't know any of your situations, but you might be here today right now and you're going through a period on the job where you're suffering in an unjust way. It happens all the time. And God might be teaching you how to go through that and be like Christ Jesus, suffer under that unjust treatment. Um. I would have you turn to 1 Peter 2 and verse 18 because this is a really valuable one. 1 Peter 2.18, we're told this. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Now, there it is, right, on, right before us in plain text. You might be a Christian who's got an unreasonable boss. And the word there is scolios. What does that mean to you? You know that in a medical sense, scoliosis is where you've got a crooked back, right? It means crooked. And so here you've got a boss. He's crooked. He's unreasonable. 
And your place is to suffer under him, to be submissive to him. In other words, we don't have a disclaimer to be sub- submissive to our boss as long as he's good. Even the ones that are not good, that are unreasonable. We have to submit to them in that way. <clears throat> I had a boss one time, and we were working on a road construction project. And it was our job to cut the loops at the intersections in the in the um, the roadway surface. You know, you pull up to a stoplight, your vehicle triggers the lights, right? They change and you get to turn. Well, that's because there's a loop cut into the surface of the roadway and a wire pushed down in there. Well, that was my job. So I ran a concrete saw and I cut this, this square-shaped... Um, little groove down into the roadway surface to get ready for that wire. Then you take a garden hose and you spray that groove out and spray all the sediment out there so you can put that wire down in there. Well, I had a boss that was so unreasonable. I was standing there spraying with the garden hose, spraying the crack out, and he came stomping over and yanked that hose out of my hand and said, this is how you do it. (laughs) I couldn't even spray a concrete with a garden hose right. Now that's pretty unreasonable. And this fellow was like that. He was he was a difficult man. I was on another job where another unreasonable boss and he had he was blind in one eye. And his nickname by the men was One-Eyed Freddy. And he would go out on the job looking around for people to see if he could find you standing there not doing anything. And he would he would come up to a beam and hide behind the beam and go to peek around, but since he was blind in one eye, his whole head would come out. <laughs> and everyone would say, look out, there's one-eyed Freddy, you know. He was a strong, stern guy. He was unreasonable. Guys didn't like him because of that. But as a Christian, it's your job to not talk back to that fellow. It's, as a Christian, it's, it's your place to submit, even not just to the good, but also to those that are unreasonable and crooked. Well, lastly, it helps to view our job as some noble good being done to mankind. Now, you might have to struggle with this one to figure out what good is being done. I don't know what your jobs are. But somehow, generally speaking, there is some good being accomplished by your job for mankind, and it helps when you get up in the morning before you go to work to view that. Something good, some good service, somehow, in some way, the Christian is able to help his fellow man with a good attitude. Really, it's a matter of attitude, isn't it? Well, amen. With all of our preaching on the job, all of our passing out of tracts and inviting people to come to our churches, etc., If we don't adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect, as an employee on the job, it doesn't do any good. It becomes a negative rather than a positive, doesn't it? And so these teachings here are really just very practical ways to live the Christian life. John Bunyan said, the soul of religion is the practical part. It's not, we're not talking about theology or something theoretical here. We're talking about the righteous demands of the gospel for you in your daily life. That's what Christianity is all about. 
not not some deep theology. It's being a Christian day to day, walking with God and doing right in all of these different relationships. And the book of Titus in that second chapter deals with that. The older men, the older women, the younger women, the younger men, and slaves, Christian employees. Well, amen. Praise the Lord for this very practical exhortation. I remember um, I worked for a while at uh, Whiteman Air Force Base as a high school student, and I was amazed that uh, a lot of the uh, airmen there worked harder to keep from working than what they would have worked if they had worked. And um, it it was actually... uh, it was it was so boring trying to keep from working that it was just made the hours crawl by. Whereas uh, if you if you give yourself to work, give yourself to doing a good job, it's amazing, isn't it? The blessing that that comes back upon you, even in a secular setting. Well, this thing of uh, attitude toward our employer is really a that's a that's a hard one, isn't it? To not have that little bit of grumbling under the surface, even or in thing, comments, ways we say things. Well, praise the Lord. Jim Gates, would you lead us in prayer, and we'll be 